Hello and welcome to episode 128 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. And I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing journeys, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And uh, we've got a great back catalogue of guests there, so please do check that out if you haven't already. And that continues this week with another great guest. Yeah, this week we're chatting with Kasim Ali, whose uh, debut novel, Good Intentions, is a Muslim love story, a romantic story. But as he will say uh, very shortly, it's the type of story that he has felt has not really been told in the correct way before. And he talks about stuff like the big sick, etc., not really hitting that kind of realistic or, or, or representative story. From yeah, I mean, we've chatted to other authors before about representation and how important that is in fiction. And it's not I, I don't think Kazim is against these these series like The Big Sick or Master of None and things like mm-hmm. that but just that there is a, a gap or he he felt that there was a gap to tell a story about a different kind of Muslim relationship that, that, that wasn't there before so it's a really interesting chat because Kazim works in publishing as well so that's right it's interesting from that point of view but also he may be the most prolific writer. Oh, I he, wish he wrote he twenty-one that. books between when he was seventeen and twenty-four. Yeah, the typical <laughs> daily word count for this man is is my month. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> so it's, it's crazy. Can, yeah, so yeah, he, he he'll if you are an aspiring writer, he'll make you feel very bad about yourself <laughs> <laughs> with the rate of work. Or very inspired. Yes, indeed. Or very the crash and burn, or you'll just you'll go through the roof. <laughs> but um. Yeah, no, he, he he's a really interesting guy, really funny guy as well. And yeah, just, you know, interesting to hear someone that has that process and his planning or lack of planning, in fact, as well, yeah, is something very, that will drive many writers mad as well. <laughs> so yeah, get ready to be angry. Very, yeah. <laughs> no, but he, he he's a great guy in all seriousness and it is a really fun episode, so. Yeah. We'll get into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. 
Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Because I read something that said that you you wrote two or three books a year for a long time. Is that is that right? Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's 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 really interesting. So I kind of yeah between the ages of like seventeen and twenty four, I wrote twenty one books. And oh wow! I yeah, people are always like, oh wow, and then I think about it, and I'm like, oh, it was just something that I was doing kind of for fun, and I had built up this habit, sort of unknowingly, really, where I was writing every single day and writing like maybe a few thousand words. Recently, I spoke to um, I don't know if you guys know of him, Brandon Sanderson. Yeah. He's like yeah, yeah. yeah. Um so I've I've read a couple of his books they're massive and his worlds are so huge and I spoke to his literary agent and his literary agent said literally all Brandon does is write 2000 words a day. And like <laughs> that's all. <laughs> that that's that's about that in in his words he's like oh um he just writes 2000 words a day and then he will do a little bit of editing on a book and a little bit of like his his kind of other stuff. Um and I was like, oh, that's what I was doing every day, basically, <laughs> between 17 and 24. I was just sitting down and writing like um, two to three thousand words a day. And that's kind of how that's I did impressive. it. That's a, that's a lot. That's a lot of words to be done, done every day, day in, day out. So this is uh, a recent revelation to me is that people say it's a lot of words. I remember thinking it was just kind of your basic um because it would take me like an hour. It would take me like an hour to do about three thousand. Oh, no. It gets worse. This is feeling <laughs> adequate now. <laughs> an hour. Uh, yeah. So I, I just and 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 the, the the funniest thing about about my writing journey is that um, I I was never in any writing clubs, so I never wrote with people. I never I was never part of any sort of community online or on Twitter or on Facebook or anything like that. And so I never knew about all the sort of. I guess all of the sort of like tricks and tips and habits that other writers had and how they thought about writing, I just sort of did it. And so when I started working in publishing and I started meeting writers and talking to them, I would tell them this and they'd be like, oh my God, you write 3000 words a day. Like that's absolutely insane. And it takes you an hour. Like it takes me four hours to write like a thousand. Um, and I sort of realized that I'd conditioned myself to do this like insane thing, which is <laughs> to just write a lot in, in a really quick time. But, um, and, and I just want to be very clear here those 21 books all got rejected right they're not good um so it, was... it, it serves as a you know it's that sort of a um who was it a malcolm is it malcolm gladwell said ten thousand hours or something you, you know if you if you do it's a good grounding i suppose in in the world of writing to 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 set you up for becoming successful perhaps yeah i would i would fully agree with that because i I um I definitely have conditioned myself into just like sitting down and writing. And so now nearly every day now, I I, I mean, it's kind of gotten less because um, 
a full-time job and being an author and having to edit books and, and all kinds of stuff um, takes a little takes a little out of you. But I, I still write nearly every single other day and I still do like, I will sit down for like 15 minutes and do like a thousand words or something. And... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought, I on, thought that would be... <laughs> uh yeah i'm sorry i just i just i when I you see this are you just typing random words in 15 minutes <laughs> and then delete the page. document and <laughs> yes i'm just typing out the dictionary um <laughs> no i recently read this book called um four thousand weeks by oliver berkman i don't know if you guys have heard of it i've heard of it yeah it's very 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 good um and it's all about our relationship to time and devastatingly the title 4000 weeks is like roughly how how long we all have on this planet like av- like on an average sort of life um and he talks about our our relationship to time our, and it's really fascinating it talks about like you know our modern world and technology and like the office and remote working and emails but the biggest thing that i took away from it is this idea of commitment and it's a very simple idea but it kind of blew my mind a little bit and it's this it's this simple idea that essentially when you are doing something, such as recording this podcast, you just commit to the idea that you are doing this right now. And the kind of bubbling list of things that you have to do, like domestic things, like I need to wash my clothes or I need to have a shower or go to the gym mm-hmm. or like emails or any other kind of thing that might be bubbling away over here. You just have to get really good at ignoring it. And he sort mm-hmm. of says that we, in our modern society, we, we, we actually are really bad at ignoring the stuff that we all have to do constantly. Um, and I think that's what I have trained myself to do with writing specifically, not with anything else, but with writing specifically, I've trained myself to be like, just very much in the zone. So if I start writing, like, that's it. Like, do not talk to me. I will not check my phone. And my flatmate hates it because sometimes she'll walk into the room and I'm just sort of writing and she'll call my name or something. And I literally just don't even like hear her. Um, and then she'd be like, oh, here he goes again. Right. Okay. I'll come back in like 10 minutes. Um, but, but but that's it and so I I don't really I try not to think about anything else I try not to do anything else it gets hard sometimes I mean Twitter is very very addictive well but... I was gonna, yeah I mean I, th- I think that's a big thing isn't it focus is very difficult yeah I these days with that a lot, there's, yeah. there's a lot of distractions so if you've trained yourself to be able to do that then that's that's a brilliant thing because you know you know I'm terrible at it um, and I see I was speaking to you, Tarek, about my kids and stuff, and like they'll they'll flip from one thing to the other mm. very quickly. You know, the, even things that are fun, they'll move on to something else. Though I guess there's know. so much more stuff mm. available now, and even when we were kids, you know, there's so much stuff to draw attention, and it gets as it gets worse as you get older because there's just more and more stuff and more and more responsibilities. And yeah, I think being able to siphon a, a little path through that and say, "I'm just going to look at this," that is good. I like that a lot. So I should say, I don't have any kids. I don't have any pets. The only thing I take care of is my Monstera plant. And she just needs <laughs> watering once a week and just turning a little bit. And 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 she's great. She's over there. She grows very well. Um, so I'm always like wary of talking about that kind of commitment to writing to people sometimes because I know that everyone's lives are so different. Yeah, sure. But it's... Um, um, I know, but I, I, yeah, I, I was talking about being distracted by Twitter as much as being distracted by, <laughs> by kids, as, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, but I think, um, you know, more seriously, the, the habit of getting into a habit with writing is a vital thing, I think, because it's too easy, especially I think if you're sort of starting out on the writing journey to think, 
oh, I'll think about it a bit more or I'll do it. I don't feel up to it tonight. I'll do it tomorrow. And you kind of put it off. But if you can train yourself into that habit, then that's when you can make big leaps forward, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I, I, I find it really enjoyable. I think maybe that adds a lot to it. It's, it's always really fun for me as well. Like I just, um, I think I was talking to a friend of mine and I was saying, that the way that I write is almost like I'm reading the book. And she kind of was like, I don't know what you mean. And I was like, oh, but, and this is kind of to do with my whole thing of not planning, which we'll get to in a second. But I sort of never know what the ending is. I never know what's going to happen. And so I'm so excited by the idea of discovering what is going to happen in this book that it is almost like reading a book to me, just slower, because writing takes a lot of time. Um, and I think that... Not for you. A... <laughs> <laughs> wow, is this what this entire podcast is? <laughs> We hate you, man. This is this is just awful. <laughs> it's it's that kind of enjoyment. It's that enjoyment of kind of going, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next, and I would love to know, and then sort of writing it and and being really sort of taken by however the plot moves. And I have this friend who I send like chunks of my book to, um, and quite often she'll just go like, oh my god, I, I can't believe this happened, and I'll just reply and I'll say, I know, right? I don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> And she sort of is always just struck by the fact that I don't know and that I'm as excited as she is to like have discovered whatever is happening in the book. So I think that adds a lot to it. It's not just the fact that I have this habit of like writing every day. It is also that it is like massively enjoyable to me. Mm-hmm. Like on my on my sort of activities that I love to do, it's 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 really high up there. And I think I've spoken to other writers um, in my job and also like through the, the author journey and they kind of talk about it as if it's this like, chore and it's like painful to them um and i've never felt that so i feel like i feel incredibly lucky because writing has never felt like that to me Um, let's let's chat about that right process then um you know you say you don't do any planning when you're sitting down to write and 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 does that mean you know do you write you find yourself writing yourself into corners do you find that you've you've you have an idea and you're like crap i need to go back and then set that up at the start of the book you know you know does, does that mean you have to edit as you go quite a lot uh no no i so so i i will have an so i'll, I'll okay I, i'm writing a book right now right and i'll tell you how it's kind of been it's okay. it's i had this idea in my head and i was like okay cool that's a cool idea and then i just started writing and i didn't forward plan and i didn't think about hey if this happens and this happens and this happens and that kind of happens as i'm writing it and i think maybe that's a kind of editing but i never go back until i finished writing the book um and I, I don't ever delete either in that first draft, which is a little bit insane because you would imagine that I would write myself into a corner, as you say, and I need to delete and get out of it. But I, I've never written myself into a corner, actually. I'm now, I'm now realizing this in real time on the podcast. I <laughs> have never written myself into a corner. That's interesting. Um, but I, I just, I, I will have an idea and I will just start writing. And my mind is quite visual. So like, I will always start with like a very... I guess like a visual scene, I will like see it in my head mm-hmm. of like how this book will begin. And then I will just go off that. Um, and it kind of, it, it really, really baffles people. Um, and I never know how to talk about it because I always feel a bit stupid when I just say that because people are always, I was talking to a writer and she says she's got three spreadsheets with like timelines and yeah. characters and yeah. plot points yeah. and, and all kinds of stuff. And I was just like, I don't have a single document planning anything. I just... I mean, but do, do, you, do you have? Sorry, Tarek. I was just going to say, do you have anything of the of the 
of the you know you, obviously this visual scene comes to you first and you start writing that fine but do you have any sort of forward tendrils going in you know maybe this might happen maybe that might happen or is it literally through the process of writing that you find out what happens it is it is through the process of writing um and it's and it's really it is really bizarre to say it like that and i I do often feel like I'm letting people down when I say that because I think people will come to writers for like, you know, what is your what is what is the trick that works for you or like do you have like a special kind of plan or something? And I just always have to say, I just sit down and write, and I can see the disappointment in people's eyes because <laughs> um, it's 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 because I love I love listening to writers. I love listening to them talk about their kind of craft and how they come to it. And I just I just never have any of that. Um, the book that I'm writing now. I literally have no idea how it's going to end. And the ending is obviously incredibly important. And I don't know. And I'm like really excited to get there to find out how it ends, which is insane. Cause I'm not, I mean, writing it. But I mean, we, we, we've chatted to a whole bunch of folk obviously. And, and everyone, everyone does have a very, a very different approach to it. And there isn't really anyone that's, I mean, there's similar approaches obviously, but there's, everyone does seem to have their own way in, whether it's starting in the middle or writing scenes, patchwork, and then put them together or just, or, or having a really super detailed plan, or just having a kind of here's points I want to hit along the way, but how I get to those points, I, would, I I don't know. But you're definitely the first person I think we've chatted to who is is really in the dark, and as I find it quite interesting that kind of just and also the fact you've never, I mean, so you wrote those twenty one books at, at start, and I, I do want to ask you about those, you know, what you did with them, and and do you think writing those books taught you subconsciously, like? to keep yourself in a, on a on a path on a safe path yeah about structure and things yeah, like that does yeah. that all come it all come sort of naturally to you i i think it must have um because I, I i think back to the first book that i wrote and literally all i wanted to do was kill every single character in it because i was 17 <laughs> and emotional um and going through an emo phase clearly and that was the only thing that I told myself. I was like, everyone's going to have to die. Um, and then I wrote like a dystopian and all I was, oh, I just was like, I just wanted to be like the Hunger Games. And I just was like, cool, let's just write this this thing. Um, and I guess in doing that, like I must have taught myself how to structure a book. I must have taught myself how to plot a book without ever actually needing to sit down and plot it. Because now I... So I was I was talking to a friend and and we were kind of discussing writing a book together and she was like oh I'm so excited to sit down and plan it and like you know do the whole sort of like step by step like this is what happened and this is what happens and this scene and this scene and I was like oh that's really boring to me because actually if we set everything out and I know what the ending is I don't want to write it and she yeah. just sort of was like what do you mean and I was like well if I know what the ending is why do I have to write the book and we just sort of sat there and stared at each other. <laughs> There's, there, there, there definitely is that kind of element of the more, the more I plan something, if it takes away the fun of writing the scene. I definitely want some. I'm, I'm too nervous to write something without, a, without any idea of where I'm going with it. But I do like to have some kind of spontaneity as I'm, as I'm going for sure. So I definitely get that. Yeah. But, but I want to ask about then if that, if that's your process in getting the first draft done. Does the second draft? You know how how does that how how did the, how does the revision process work for you and is there a lot of changing that you're making at that point? Now I have to tell you the devastating thing, which is <laughs> don't don't that... don't say that first draft's perfect. Well, no, I wouldn't say that because no first draft is perfect. Take that from me, an editor. Um, <laughs> no, I 
I've never revised a book before sending it out to anyone, um, which is quite frankly insane. And maybe why a load, like those 21 books got rejected because I never went back and revised them. Um, I am only now with my second book, my second sort of contracted book mm-hmm. that I'm going back and revising it. And that's been really interesting because I've never done that before. And I'm finding it really hard because I'm sort of, I can already feel the boredom in me where I'm like, I already know how it ends. Why am I sitting here reading this book? I already know how it ends. Um, And it's really difficult to do it by myself. But Good Intentions, the book that was published in March, like I sent that to my agent without ever reading it back to myself. Um, Wow, that's bold. Yes, I think it speaks to the massive ego in me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, see when you're, so you're editing your second book now, what sort of stuff are you changing? What do you find, what sort of things do you find yourself editing then? So I'm an overwriter. Like I, um, it's, it's really, really bad. I will, my editor likes to, my, my, the editor who acquired me, she said, um, when one metaphor works, you like to use about eight. Um, and I can completely see what she means because now I'm going through my second book and I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't need to say he was like sad in this like 10 different ways in like one paragraph, just when one would work. So I'm seeing a lot of that and like, I have to pull myself back and there's a lot of like repetition and like, that's really interesting. But I think structurally, like I haven't really changed much of it. Like everything sort of, everything sort of like works on a structural level. It is more just to sort of like going in and getting rid of those little bits of repetition and those that that kind of overwriting that is just happening when I'm writing my first draft and I think that that has happened to like every single book of mine I remember good intentions was like 90,000 words when I finished my first draft and then it went up to 120 because we added like a couple of more things and then it went all the way back down to like 94 and that 26 25 26k that we lost was literally me repeating myself like paragraph after paragraph after paragraph <laughs> and I remember looking at the line edit and being like wow I really I really like just you know pushing the point home and not letting the reader be like okay we get it um it, it's, that, that- it, it's interesting because your um your day job is as an editor as you say um assistant editor at Penguin Random House um does that you know, do you think that helps or hinders you in any way when you're doing your own writing? It, it sounds like, because presumably as an editor, I, I'm not sure what type of editor you are there in terms of, you know, what, what what's your day-to-day role. But does that, presumably that involves looking at things like repetition and things like that and picking up on that. Yeah, it's um, it's a lot easier to do it to someone else's work than to <laughs> do it to your own. Um, it's a lot easier to sit down and say to someone, oh, okay, structurally, this isn't working. And why don't we move this chapter here? And it can be quite hard to, and I think that's why I say like revising my second book before I send it to my editor, I'm finding that quite difficult because actually I'm so close to it and I kind of need someone else to come in and say like, let's move this around and let's like do these things to it. Um, I, in my job, like I do read, I, I kind of edit structurally, um, I don't do line edits because that gets kind of formed out to someone else. But structurally, like I do do edits. And that's, that's kind of where the writing has actually helped a lot because I can come in and, and kind of see, okay, this chapter isn't quite working here and we should move it here. Or like this plot point isn't fleshed out enough. I just bought a book um, and I sent like a massive editorial letter to the author. And it's all about like basically deepening everything and kind of being able, kind of looking at everything with the big, 
kind of big picture view. Mm-hmm. And so I think ironically, actually, what I'm really good at in my job is doing the thing that I can't do for myself as a writer, which is looking at stuff at like a big yeah. picture level and yeah. being able to move things around. Um, but I'm not very good with other people's writing in kind of going in and being able to take out the repetition stuff because I I don't know if I can't see it or if I know that someone else is going to do it. I think it's the fact that I know someone else is going to do it. So I kind of ignore all that but I can't ignore it in my own writing. So I actually really, conversely, I think um, what I'm good at in my editing job is what I'm not good at in my writing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and kind of vice versa. So, so I mean, let's, let, let's chat about how you, how you got that deal for, for Good Intentions, your first, your first big book, um, which came out in March this year. Now, um, you, you'd written 21 books and you'd had, had you submitted all of those books to agents had you had you been trying to get an agent all that time uh i didn't submit all of them because like literally when i first started it was just fun like it was just me sending it to a couple of my friends and being like oh look at this thing that i made isn't it cool um and then when i was at university a sort of indie publisher came to talk to I think the creative writing cohort, but I was on, I was doing an English degree, but they kind of asked the English students, because I think there's a lot of crossover between those two degrees, if anybody wanted to come. And I was like, yeah, of course I want to come because I want to work in publishing and I want to be a writer. And I was listening to this indie publisher talk and I thought, oh, maybe I could send something out there. And that's when I sort of started, you know, really digging into like how the industry works. Because before then I didn't know anything. Like I didn't know anything. I was just a 21 year old who was like, this is really fun and blah, blah, blah. So I, and what's interesting is at 21, I had a sort of awakening where I discovered maybe my voice, I think, because before then I was just kind of copying the books that I liked to mm-hmm. read yeah. and sort of writing my own version of them. I think what I've said before is I was just basically taking my favorite fantasy and science fiction books and putting Muslims in them. So it was like Muslims in space or Muslims <laughs> like riding dragons or like, <laughs> um, and I and I sort of like when I was about 21, I think I read White Teeth by Zadie Smith and it kind of blew my mind a little bit because I was like, oh, like this feels like my people and my community and like the people that I'm stranded by in my world. And that's kind of what, what I want to write. So when I started really thinking about being published, I was also starting to think about changing my writing a lot. Um, so I did send them out and they just got they got rejected, man. Cross the board. I I. And here's the thing. I've also spoken to writers who are like, I have all of my rejection emails saved in a folder. I just deleted all of mine. I was like, I don't need to look at them ever again. <laughs> um, so I, I don't have them to access. I don't know how many I did, but I sent like maybe six or seven books out um, and I just got rejected for all of them. And it wasn't until the last two rejections that I really learned something because those last two books got a lot of feedback from agents. Whereas before I was getting, you know, those like very standard yeah, form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, which are like, I, now that I work in the industry, I'm like, of course they're going to send those because some agents get like 500 submissions a week. I don't understand how anybody is supposed to reply to anyone on that scale. But at the time they were quite, you know, like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. I don't know how to learn from this. I don't know how to grow from this. But those last two books that I wrote before Good Intentions, the first one was like a 200,000 words epic, kind of in the vein of like a suitable boy, but in like modern Britain. And two agents gave like really good, like massive feedback on it. And they were like, it's long and it's messy and it's chaotic, 
I think one of them even said to me, they were like, you kind of, it feels like you wrote this without you knowing what the ending was. And I was like, that's pretty funny. <laughs> that's true. Um, and I didn't learn anything from that feedback, actually, because I just never know what the ending is. Um, and then that, the second book was like 150,000 words. And again, I got the same feedback of like, it's too long and it's too messy and there's too many people and too many plot lines happening. Um, and I learned from that feedback and I wrote Good Intentions, which is like, comparatively speaking, this tighter smaller more concise story that is just fundamentally about two people and I'm so thankful to those agents who replied with that feedback like it really means the world to me because if they hadn't and you know what the worst thing is I don't even have those emails because I read them and then deleted them so I can't <laughs> even tell you who those agents were or like email them and thank them for it because I guess I don't believe in history um but so yeah I was kind of you know emailing these agents for like that period of time between 21 and 24 and then good intentions basically happened because I sent it. I, it was very different. I sort of had sent the previous books to like 20 or 30 agents with like the same covering letter, you know, sort of just changing the name and then sending yeah. it out. Um, but with good intentions, I was like, no, I'm going to properly like think about who I want to represent me. And at this point I was in the publishing industry. I was learning people. I was learning the kind of the way the whole thing kind of moved um and so I wrote a list down of like three agents and I sent it out to them and they all rejected me the next day <laughs> <laughs> brutal and I was like oh okay maybe this book is bad um and then I sent it to an incredibly good friend of mine who had previously rejected me for like a job like I'd interviewed with her and she rejected me and I emailed her and I was like uh what the hell bro like we had such good vibes in the interview how dare you reject me and she was like can I take her coffee I was like, yeah, fine, but you have to like tell me why you rejected me. And we've become really good friends now. And so she was like, send me this book. I want to read it because it sounds really good. So I did. And then she came back and was like, you should send it to these people. And so then I did. And one of them turned out to be my agent. And then my agent was like, yeah, we uh, sign you up for this. Um, and that happened, I think, like... I think I wrote the book in April 2019 and I got signed with the agent in December 2019. Um, oh, and the reason it fast. took so long. Oh, well, it's fast. <laughs> Everything's fast with Kazi. <laughs> right. It's in my head. Long, long. Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say the reason it took so long is because there was a big gap between those first three people and then the second bunch of agents that I sent oh, to because okay, my friend was yeah, reading it. Yeah. Um, but maybe that is fast. I have no idea. Clearly, I don't know anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then the pandemic happened and we sold it like right in the pandemic in June 2020. And I think the the funniest thing about the entire process, and I think maybe now that I'm at the end, not, not at the end of it, but sort of the book is published. And I'm mm. sort of looking back in this kind of nostalgic way and being like, oh, remember when this happened is when I met my agent for the first time. And I wouldn't meet her again for like two years because of the pandemic. Like mm -hmm. she moved out of London. I moved out of London. Like we just yeah. never saw each other for two years. She said to me, what is like your impossible? Like what is your top sort of, you know, this might never happen. And I said to her, fourth estate and six figures. And I remember sitting in this cafe and she sort of had this big smile on her face. And she was like, oh, sure, we can try and make that happen. And then <laughs> like six months later, it happened. And <laughs> the reason I tell people this story is not to be like, oh, my agent didn't know what she's talking about. It's more that she's such a good agent that she literally made like my impossible yeah. like, come true. Um, but whenever who, who I tell is that, your agent? Like, you, should, you should let us know who your agent is. Oh, she's... Um, 
Juliet Pickering at uh, the Blake Friedman Agency. She's incredible. She's she agents like very very like interesting young authors, um, and she's like very very good at her job and an incredible woman. But um, when I tell that story in front of her, she gets very embarrassed and she's like, "Can you stop telling people the story of how I didn't believe in you?" And I'm like, "No, I'm telling it because you made it happen. You're like super agent." <laughs> Well, well, why don't we? Why don't you tell us a, a bit about what your novels about? So, what is what is good good intentions? Uh, what's the what's the pitch for it? Oh, see, I'm so good at pitching my my the books that work. I'm so bad at pitching my own. <laughs> um, good intentions is effectively a story about a young Pakistani Muslim boy called Noor who falls in love with a young Sudanese Muslim girl called Yasmina, and they have this kind of very cute relationship at university but then sort of when they begin to commit to one another the sort of central conflict arises which is that Noor doesn't want to introduce Yasmina to his parents because he believes that they are anti-black and that they won't accept her into the family and sort of so it sort of explores that tension between the two communities but I think what it does more is explore the tension between Noor and his parents and the sort of relationship we have with our parents and I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is the idea that our parents are like sort of trapped almost like in amber you know like the jurassic world thing um and that they can't move or change or evolve as we can and so i've been very guilty of that and i think that's what i was trying to explore in the book was like actually maybe we should give our parents a chance and maybe they'll come back and they'll be like no actually we are encased in amber and we will never ever change <laughs> these like hard cold people but also maybe they might surprise us and so yeah, that's kind of what the book is about. And it's like, you know, young people going through things, millennials complaining about stuff. <laughs> but but do, do you think um, you wrote you wrote these other books before and I think you said the first ones were sort of dystopian, sci-fi, fantasy type stuff. But now this is much more grounded stuff. Do you think writing something that is closer to you is what helped this book, this particular book get get picked up? Yeah, I, I think so. I like when we sold the book, you know, there was a massive conversation happening in publishing about the kinds of people we publish and how we publish them and who works in publishing and who makes those decisions. So I think that was very beneficial in in kind of making that happen. Um, which is not to say that my editor bought me because I had a very big conversation with her kind of in the in the Zoom meeting when they were sort of pitching themselves to be my publisher. And I asked a really hard question. I was like, are you buying this book because it's a brown book and you needed a brown book? And my editor was like, no, we're buying this book because it's a good book. It's just helpful that you are brown. <laughs> because it's about, it's about what it's about. And I don't think a white writer could have written it. Um, and I just thought that was such a good answer from her. And she was, she was very, very clear on that as we edited and as we published. But I do think that it was beneficial in sort of getting it out there and getting people to pay attention to it. But also personally speaking, I was having a sort of, like I said, after university, having this sort of awakening in the kind of books I was reading and what I cared about. And, you know, I'd started working in the publishing industry, which is like very, very white and very middle class. And I'm very not those things. Um, and so I think I was trying to, I was grappling with that in my writing. And it just kind of, it felt, I remember, I remember feeling like I don't want to write about Muslims in space anymore because... I am a Muslim on this planet and what does that feel like and what is that reality like and maybe that's what I should be writing about so I think it was a bit of both I was more comfortable and more excited maybe by writing that kind of stuff and also at the time that we sold it there was a lot of that conversation happening that I think helped and you think um 
like I read, you talked about how TV shows and films like Master of None and The Big Sick kind of fail to capture the reality of being a Muslim, having a kind of relationship with people, that 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 kind of story. And do you think that you know? Did you feel almost a responsibility to to want to try and write a more accurate portrayal? Yeah. See, I wouldn't. I guess I I I would say. I wanted to show a different kind of Muslim because I think those kinds of Muslims that we see in Master of None and in The Big Sick and in like a bunch of other stuff like Bodyguard and um, there was that film on Apple TV, I think called, I can't remember what it was called actually, but it was also kind of a Muslim stepping away from their religion and their culture. I think we've seen that narrative so often and so much that it's, to me, it's just kind of stifling and boring because I'm like, actually, there are two billion, two billion Muslims in the world. And I think each one of them has a story as unique as the next. And so why are we only ever getting to see this one story? So that's kind of, that's kind of what I felt about the big sick master of men. And that's why I wrote this book because I was like, actually, I want to explore Muslims like me who like might not necessarily pray as much as we should, or, you know, are, are as observant as we should be, but also still are very much like, we are Muslim and we still belong to this religion and we're still finding a place for ourselves in it. And that might change and we might become more observant or actually less observant as we grow up, but that doesn't matter because we still are Muslim. And so that's kind of, that's kind of what I wanted to explore. Whether I feel a responsibility, I think when I wrote this book, I was like, yes, this is my, I'm the person to do this because I had a lot of, you know, main character syndrome. I think now I'm like, it's not my responsibility, but I'm, it's what I want to do. So I don't feel a responsibility or a moral obligation to like represent Muslims. Because I think what I've learned with the publishing of this book is that it's impossible to represent every kind of Muslim. And even though I never set out to do that, I think people read this book and they think that it is what I'm trying to, trying to do. And so it fails them in, in some kind of way. Um, I, yeah, I, I just, it's, it's kind of what I want to, yeah, I don't feel a responsibility towards it. It's just kind of what I want to be doing right now. And that might change. I might go back to Muslims in space again. Maybe I'll write like the Martian. <laughs> It'll be called the Muslim Martian or something. I don't know. I'll come up with a better title. But right now, that's kind of what's box, not joy in me, but sort of interests me and excites me. Um, and like, uh, and what I feel really comfortable writing. So when I sit down and I, I write my 3,000 words a day, you know, that's kind of what's box it. Do you think you know there's a lot of conversation in the industry not just in literature but also in in, in other uh, like media um about authenticity and who can tell certain stories and all of this sort of thing you know do you think certain stories can only be told if you have that experience that background to to it so interestingly you asked that because actually i tomorrow i'm going to birmingham to do a keynote speech where i talk about representation and who can and blah 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 blah, blah. um and i think i kind of i knew how that was going to end actually with a speech i know how that's going to end um <laughs> for me i think and i know some people disagree with this i was having i was having a conversation with a young black debut author uh, a male author and he had sort of said to me that essentially you know, you can't, you shouldn't have written about a black woman because you're not a black woman. And I sort of, I sort of was like quite struck by that. And I sort of, I don't know, it was a very interesting conversation because I think he was coming at it from the perspective of like, you shouldn't write about people unless you're part of that group. Yeah. 
Whereas I was coming at it from the perspective of, I wrote not from her perspective, but from mm-hmm. the Pakistani Muslim's perspective about that relationship. But that kind of didn't fly with him. I think it's a really big conversation. And where I stand on it is that I think we should be, I don't think we should constrict ourselves to writing about what our experience is because then we're all just writing memoir as mm. like, fiction, right? Which is quite boring to me. Um, but at the very same time, I think it depends on what you're writing about. So for example, I never wrote a chapter from Yasmina's perspective because I never felt like I could because the book is dealing with like the very specific lived experience of being that person, which I don't have. But if this book was about Muslims in space and one of the Muslims in space was a black woman and it wasn't about racism and it was more about her battling an alien or something, Mm -hmm. I think I would feel comfortable doing that because Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily then about a lived experience. It's more about just the fact that she's a black woman who's in space fighting aliens. And I think that I would feel comfortable doing that. But in a in a story where it's about racism or sexism or prejudice or discrimination, I can't access that because that's not that's not who I am. That's not how I live my life. And I think I'm comfortable with that right now. Maybe that'll change in the future. Maybe I will become less comfortable with it. Maybe I'll become more comfortable with embracing different kinds of identities. Um, what I find really interesting is that in my second book, it's about a friendship between a young Pakistani boy and a young Pakistani girl who sort of grow up together. And there are chapters from the Pakistani girl's perspective. And I never really thought about this, but now I'm sort of looking back at it and I'm like, oh, that's interesting that I felt quite comfortable actually portraying that kind of person, even though that I'm not that person. And is it because I have sisters and I have aunties and cousins that I grew up with and friends is that why I feel comfortable doing that? And it's it's this constant like reckoning I have with myself about, it's a constant questioning I think that I'm having about my writing. So it's, it, there's no easy answer. There's no simple answer. And, but what I think, what I think we need to be doing more of is like, I think instead of just being react, reactionary, I think we need to reflect more on why people are writing certain kinds of books. And I'm not saying that Lionel Shriver should be able to use the N-word because absolutely she should not. But like, I think Nick Hornby like wrote a book, like an interracial book mm. between, I think it was a white woman and a black guy. And I think people like took him to court over that. I'm like, well, not to court, but like, you know, sort of the yeah. court of Twister um, and said that he shouldn't be able to write that book. But it was a love story between these two people. And he was kind of examining, you know, how, how would it be from the white woman's perspective? And I just find that really interesting that he wasn't, he was told that he wasn't allowed to write that. Whereas I read that book and I didn't think that he did anything. He didn't, he didn't do anything wrong with it. Um, so it's all really complicated. I'm sorry. I don't have a simple answer for you. No, no, it, no it, it, it is complicated. It is complicated. I, yeah. And I think what you're saying about, you know, lived experience is important because it, it's about the story you're telling as well. I think, yeah. you know, I think you can have, uh, I, personally, I don't, see the and i say this obviously as a white guy so maybe i'm entirely wrong but you know having a diverse cast in a big action thriller story there shouldn't be any problem with with being able to write about that because you're not looking into the the lived experiences of the characters or in most big action thrillers you're not doing that but i think if you're writing something more introspective then that's where the problems can arise if you if you try and do something that you've got no knowledge of really and and you're 
sort of putting in your views into that, then that's where problems can arise, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, White Teeth by Zadie Smith. I mean, she's writing about one of the, one of the core characters is a Bangladeshi Muslim man. And I don't know if you've seen Zadie Smith. She's not a Bangladeshi Muslim man. Um, but the way that she writes about him and about what he's going through is done with such care and such, like you said before, like it, it feels very authentic on the page that I would never have, I would never go up to her and say, how dare you write about this person? Because actually the way that she's done it, it feels so intimate to me and so precise that it feels real. Um, but that isn't to say that maybe there is a Bangladeshi Muslim man out there who's like, actually, I read this book yeah. and it doesn't be true to me. And so I think that's, I think that's the thing about it is that everyone's going to have such a different like reaction to stuff. I've had people read my book and say, oh, this is exactly my kind of experience. So therefore it's good. And then some people say, this isn't my experience and therefore it's bad. And mm-hmm. it's just, how do you, how do you yeah. quantify that? And how do you come up with like a, I, I don't think you can. Um, but it really depends on intention for me. I think when the Lionel Trivers of the world, when they come out and they say, I should be able to write about whoever I want. It's kind of, it's always done in like bad taste for me. Cause I'm like, actually you're just, you're just saying something, but you're not actually thinking about what you're saying. And you're not thinking about what it is that we're saying. We're not saying that you can't write about people who aren't exactly who you are right now, but we're saying you have to do it with care. Yeah. And yeah. you have to think about the people you're writing about. And, I know you've also mentioned, um, you know, the 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 representation of people from all different kind of kind of backgrounds um, across all media, really. And you know, Riz Ahmed gave a speech in the UK Parliament, talked about the representation of Muslims on screen, and hoping it was kind of like a turning point. And do you think we are seeing a, an improvement in terms of, you know, I think of stuff like. On a, on a kind of base level, Eternals, the Marvel movie with a really you know wide cast. You got Coda, the Deaf World, Jordan Peele, even even David David Copperfield with his kind of colorblind casting. You know, are, it, are things changing in a way in terms of more representation or different or unexpected ways of putting different types of people on screen or in books? I would say, <clears throat> I would say personally, I think it's happening faster in TV. Um, and I think that might be just because of the way that TV kind of works. I think TV has always kind of been more at the forefront of these kinds of conversations just because it's so quickly um, produced and sort of put out there. And then I think in film, it's happening secondarily quick, quicker, if you will. And I think books is the slowest. And yeah. I think maybe the reason for that is that publishing works really slowly. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I also think that it's, um, it's an incredibly hard industry for new people to come into. So with films and TV, I think, <clears throat> excuse me um a young director can come in and sort of you know like make a film or like start talking to people or get funding and obviously it's hard and there are loads of people who want to do that and they don't they're not able to but I think the kind of barrier to access is like lower whereas if you have a person who's never worked in publishing and they want to be an editor or a publisher it's like literally impossible for you to do that you have to become an editorial assistant and then yeah. <clears throat> spend 10 years working your way up up until you get to a point, hopefully, hopefully you get to a point where you're able to make decisions. And I think also having worked in publishing, I think there are a lot of people at the top who are kind of holding on to their jobs. Um, and a lot of those people, and I don't, I don't say this to be like ageist or anything, but a lot of those people entered the industry in like literally the last century. Yeah. And so you have these people at the top whose, whose tastes are kind of stuck 
in that space and I'm not saying all of them but like most of them and most of the people that I've spoken to in those kind of senior decision making uh, positions that's kind of where they are and so they, they they're old school publishing and they don't want to listen to new things and they don't want to kind of be accused of being in that space um, and so I think that's why books is kind of slower on that on that on that face I mean I, I remember reading that New York Times article maybe it was last year and it was kind of talking about how is it like 90 something percent of books on the bestseller list are like yeah. white people yeah like something yeah. insane like that like an yeah, insane yeah. like that um and then you sort of you see that and you step back and you think oh what i'm seeing on twitter just doesn't correlate actually with yeah. what the general book buying public are reading because i'll be on twitter and because of the people i follow I see like really cool things about like one white authors all over the place. And then you step back and you look at the bestseller lists and you look at what is in the charts and you look at what people are buying and what's on the Waterstones tables. And you're sort of like, Oh, okay, actually it's just not correlating at all. Um, So in terms of like, whether there's a turning point, I think in TV, it's a lot better than it is in any other industry. I think film is sort of like doing quite a lot, and don't get me wrong, there are still people in positions of power in both of those industries who are still stuck in the past and still making it really hard for people to get what they to make what they want to make. But I think the barriers to access um, are like lower and easier. Publishing is just so entrenched in this kind of old school way of thinking. And I, there are incredible people out there who are doing such incredible work. Like Juliet Pickering, my agent, she <clears throat> her whole thing is like representing people across the board like working class or like queer or disabled or non-white who just haven't historically been represented in publishing well she's doing a lot of work there are loads of other people both in publishing and literary agents who are doing a lot of work but it is really hard it is very very difficult and I think I hope maybe in the next 10 years when those like older people at the top like Mm -hmm. retire or maybe we force them to retire because I don't know if a lot of them will actually (laughs) do it themselves I would hope then that we would see a kind of leveling up of the industry, yeah. if you will, and maybe then we'll see proper lasting change. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough. I work in it and it's tough. Although then you have James Patterson coming out and saying that it's the <laughs> the old white guys that have it tough these days. But yes, yeah, so the real racism there is against the white men. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, 52-year-old white man who can't get published. <laughs> yeah. He's got a billion number one bestseller novels. He's got like a, he's got like a, what was it, a personal fortune of like 800 million or something. What they <laughs> I mean, it must be. It's, it's, that? Yeah, it's nuts. I'm like, James, man, read the room, please. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, you said, you said you're currently working on um, your second book. Um, when, you know, at what stage of that are you at? So I, <laughs> all right, don't hate me. Okay, please. I beg. Um, I wrote finished my second... it while we've been on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, I was like, didn't you hear me typing? Um, no, I, I wrote my second book before we sold the first one. So okay. in like January to March of 2020, I wrote this like book and then I left it alone for a while. So now I'm editing it before I send it to my editor. Um, but I also just finished writing my memoir, which is really funny because I'm like 27. So what do I have to say about the world? But it turns out a lot. Um, and nice. I am working on the next one because I, like I said, I have to be writing every day. And if I don't write every day, I feel a sort of, I don't know, like an absence in me, which is like a very soppy way of saying like it really means a lot to mm. me. 
Um, so I'm always working on something. And and would you? I mean, you sort of joked about it earlier, but would you want to go back to to the the more genre type fiction at, at some point? I think I would love to. I think I I still read a lot of it, and it still is like really fun. And sometimes I'll just <laughs> sometimes I'll just think about like having and like really enjoying myself, having so much fun and creating these worlds and putting these people in it, and sort of being limitless with my imagination and being like, and now a whole planet blows up. Yeah, of course it does. And let's just see what happens. Um, <laughs> I think I would love to. I just haven't had a good enough good enough idea yet, I think. Mm. Um, but it still kind of percolates in the back of my mind. Every so often I'm like, so the idea that I would love to write, and I don't know if I'm a good enough writer to do that yet, is when I was about 22, 21 maybe, I wrote... <laughs> I wrote a very short book about a Muslim vampire who was having a crisis of faith because he was very much like, how can I be a vampire, but also a Muslim? Um, And it all takes place at his kitchen table and he's sort of having a a conversation with God. It is so stupid. Um, But I kind of would love to go back and see what twenty-seven-year-old Caston would do. With yeah, that. No, that, that's. It seems like a. I can see it being a play. That's a kind of nice stage, kind of like low cast, just a kind of one issue. Just I like that. That's that's quite interesting. Yeah. yeah one location, one character. Yeah, yeah. I can see. I can see that working well. <laughs> what was the last book that you read? The last book that I read um, is called The Immortal King Rao, um, which I have right here, actually. How funny. Um, right there. Look at that. Nice. And it's by somebody called Vahini Vara, I think. Um, and it's this story of a... I don't even know how to describe it without spoiling it, actually. But it's about... So King Rao is actually this person's name. And he was born in India and then comes over to America and builds a tech company that's basically like Apple and Google and Facebook all kind of in one and he kind of destroys civilization and so it, so it explores <laughs> um, yeah so it explores um, his kind of his life in India when he was like a baby and like the kind of family he was born into how did he come to America how did he become this kind of tech giant and then his kind of downfall but also the downfall of civilization that was kind of orchestrated by his fingers and it's like really really interesting and has a lot to say about our relationship with technology today um so that was the last book that i read cool nice um what about the last film that you watched the last film that i watched sadly was thor love and thunder oh sadly Um, sadly because all right controversial opinion yeah Uh i think taika waititi is about as funny as like Ricky Gervais and I I hate Ricky Gervais I'm so sorry <laughs> oh TV. man this is a controversial episode I'm not sure how I feel about all this stuff <laughs> I just don't think bombs. he's that funny I think he's juvenile and his jokes are all like ha 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 I have a New Zealand accent and I'm talking I'm a talking rock <laughs> like all right man that's actually not that funny <laughs> but um, if you do like that kind of stuff you'll love Thor Love and Thunder is that what you're I guess so I guess it just felt very um I was talking to my friend about this and how all the Marvel stuff feels very inconsequential now. Like, sort yeah. of like, I could talk for like hours about it because even though, so like, my friends accuse me of hate watching, but actually, I watch every single film with like optimism. So I went to go watch um, Elvis 
with like even though i'd read all of the bad reviews i went to go watch it with a great deal of optimism because i was like it's going to be great and actually had a really great time because i'd gone in expecting it to be i think bad because of the reviews but also hoping it would be good and then it turned out to be like quite fun um so i always go into every marvel film thinking this will be good and then it never is recently it what just, about the tv like, stuff the, uh, they've kind of explored some stuff like ms marvel i thought was quite well, i've not actually watched it properly yet but I thought it was quite a fresh, it seems like a fresh angle and stuff, like Moon Knight. Oh, a little bit tar- different. Listen, no? nah, Miss Marvel can get in the bin. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just, I don't think it's for me. Um, it's not it's not hitting the way that I wanted to. But can I recommend a TV show instead that is like... Yeah, but we're yeah, going to yeah, ask yeah, you what TV yeah. show you're watching. Yeah. Um, have you guys heard of Pachinko? Yes, on Apple TV, is it? Yes, 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 yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm a pretentious like person who has all of these streaming services that I really can't afford, but I love them. And I, so Pachinko is a book, and I read the book, and I loved it. And the TV show is this really moving, touching, like drama. And I cried every single episode. And when I tell my friend that, she's like, "But you cry at everything," and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, but it's so different." <laughs> um, and it's like, it's like incredible, and it tells the story of like a family. Um, across 80 or 90 years, I think. And there's a woman called Sunjo who's born in Korea and then Japan kind of colonizes Korea. And then she moves over to Japan and she builds a family and she has kids and they have kids. And it traces like this three, like maybe four generations, if you include her parents right at the beginning, um, living their lives through this period of colonization by Japan and then sort of independence and what it feels like to be an immigrant who's like so close, like you're so close to your country but you can't go back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like really touching and really moving and like beautifully told. And I, I loved it. I loved it so much. Nice. Uh, oh, well, the, the, the very, very last thing we do is a super quick fire either or. And um, I always say there's no right <laughs> answer apart from one. So we'll start off with, um, let's go for uh, Michaela Cole or Jordan Peele. Uh, Michaela Cole. Nice. Uh, TV or Cinema. Cinema. Uh, night owl or early bird early bird uh, music or no music when you're writing music specifically france and the machine right now okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and the last one real book or ebook both i work in publishing so i have i'm like i'm an equalizer nice, nice. that's it. i'll take that point i'm a big ebook fan <laughs> few and far between trying to find someone who backs that so um, i'll take that point that's fine <laughs> i mean look i have so many hardbacks and let me tell you reading a hardback sometimes my hands get real tired right? love why don't you get an ebook for free when you buy the hardback they should just give it away that should be a thing you know what i have been pushing this idea for a while <laughs> but um apparently it eats into revenue so <clears throat> but then they sell the ebook like for 99 pence like the week after the yeah, hardback comes out yeah. like it's you know it's driving me mad anyway well, that's why I say to my friends who do not work in publishing, <clears throat> when they're like, I don't want to buy a 25 pound hardback. I'm like, give it like three weeks. It'd be 99 pounds. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a really fun chat. I really enjoyed that. Although I have to yeah. say, it sounds like Marvel aren't really doing too well in, in his book at the moment. Yeah, I do. I do kind of get what he means about them seemingly drifting with these stories at the moment without yeah. any fixed. You know, the first, whatever the code was, it phase one, phase two, 
leading up to the sort of Infinity, Infinity War, War type yeah. thing. It, it, it all felt like it had somewhere to go. I think in a perfect world. Some of the entries in these ones just seem like pretty I, I, I agree with that, yeah. yeah. I think in a perfect world, um, they would have maybe had a pause after mm. Endgame just to regroup a little bit. I, you know, but I totally get, obviously, there's a lot of money to be in this and I can't do that. But it does feel like they've not quite kicked the next story it's not building yeah. towards anything yet. And I, 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 I was reading what it is going to build to, and that's, which is fantastic, but it's not doing that yet. And it's, I'm, I need, I'm looking forward to that startup. Yeah. So I get and, uh, yeah. I think, yeah. Inconsequential, I think is maybe the word. I, I, you know, it, a lot of it feels inconsequential, including the TV shows as well. I yeah. Think. Although I, I mean, I, say, I, I still have watched them all and they're all perfectly Oh, they're all, fine, they're all enjoyable. Yeah. But and I have to say, I do, not, I do, it's quite funny because you get people who, Moan and complain when these you have to watch twelve things to understand what's going on, and you get yeah. moan and complain when it's too standalone. So it's it is tricky, but I think I definitely lean towards the I want everything to hook in together and to build towards something yeah. big. That's exciting yeah. stuff for sure. But anyway, we somehow ended up talking about Marvel <laughs> anyway. instead of instead of anything Kazim has said. Apart from that, so yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting episode. So thanks very much to Kazim uh, for coming on to the podcast. His 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 prolific rate of writing means that he's probably written another five books during that during, during that recording episode. That we've just yeah, done, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, you can go and pick up Good Intentions right now, and uh, yeah, obviously looking forward to what Kazim's got coming out next as well. And uh, next week we've got another great guest on the podcast, another debut author, another debut author indeed. Uh, we are chatting with Shauna Lawless, who is an Irish author. And her debut fantasy novel is launching next week at time of recording. So the week of the podcast you're listening mm-hmm. to at the time. And it's called The Children of Gods and Fighting Men. And it's, uh, it's getting some excellent buzz at the moment. Yeah, very much a sort of historical fantasy, taking mm-hmm. some of these Irish myths and, and turning it into a, a really compelling book. So, yeah, we, we chat to Shona about that. And, I'm, you know, she got into being published in an interesting way as well it wasn't through the usual agent process so um yeah it's a really good episode so please do tune in for that one and if you've enjoyed today's episode please do take the time to rate and review us uh, and uh, follow us like us subscribe us all of these things uh, helps us uh, continue to get great guests on the podcast and of course if you have any questions or comments you can always get in touch with us by dropping us a tweet in the twitter machine which is at uk page one or you could always send us an email to the address podcast at rightgear.co.uk. Yeah, and we'd love to hear from you. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later.